the picture of that men's breakfast looks really good. I don't know where those guys are eating, but uh, we'll try our best. Hey, welcome everyone. Good morning. How's it going? Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, thanks for braving the cold and the snow. I know that if you're from this area, it's like, yeah, I mean, sure, there's snow on the ground. Um, if you're from southern states, it's like, should we go outside? Um, you're good. The salt trucks are out there, I think, or they, they might have even just rolled their eyes at it or whatever. Um, but to what Kale said, I know that um, just as the seasons come and different, whether it's the weather or traveling for holidays or sickness, we're really grateful when we can gather and we're grateful when we're able to. And if you're not able to for any reason, please take advantage of the online stuff. Um, but we really, it's just something special and powerful about being here together. Uh, I want to throw out one other announcement, too, is that um, one thing that we do at, uh, almost every year is we come alongside this organization, the city called New Moms. And uh, New Moms does a, um, a Christmas drive for the different moms who are part of their program and everything. And so we have a QR 26, Leviticus 26. It's on page uh, 104 in the Pew Bible, if you want to turn to there. Uh, we are now in our last message going through the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Uh, we've been in this uh, pretty much all fall, uh, which has been really cool. This is something, I've, I've said this a couple times, I just really have been wanting to teach through the book of Leviticus since I came to New Life. I've been part of New Life for almost 15 years now, and we've never done it. And so to finally be able to get into this book, it's just been a really cool, exciting thing for me. Hopefully it hasn't been something that you've had to put up with for this entire fall, but it's been something that's been uh, a way to learn more about the Lord and be encouraged within that and challenged within that. Um, and this last message, this last chapter, um, this last section, if you will, uh, really kind of culminates things. And so before we get into it, I want to pray. And just again, that God would, uh, as we get into this last word from Leviticus, that God would continue just to encourage our hearts. And so let's pray together. God, we do thank you and praise you um, just for your faithfulness. We thank you, God, for uh, the, the majestic, amazing, all-powerful, all-knowing God that you are, that you are worthy of worship. And God, that I praise you that you're not far off, that you're not um, distant, but that you're close, that you're near, that you're approachable, that you want to be with us, that you are for us. And I pray, God, that you would encourage us with those truths this morning. God, for those in our church family that are sick, we pray that you bring healing. For those who are traveling, we pray you bring safety. Uh, thank you, God, that we can gather, and I pray that you would just speak and encourage and challenge us this morning through your word. In your name we pray, amen. So Leviticus 26 is really a culmination of the entire book, um, and really everything that's come before. Not only everything that's come before in Leviticus, but everything that came before even in the book of Exodus, which we went through this summer. Uh, and we really need to grasp some of these connections between what happened in Exodus and what's happened in Leviticus to understand what's going on here in chapter 26. Uh, chapter 26 begins like this. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God." You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Now, there's a lot of previous connections here just in these two small verses. In Exodus, the previous book, God had rescued Israel from Egypt, brought them out of slavery, and he then went about making them into this great nation that he promised Abram that they would be. 
Before making a covenant with them in Exodus 20, God says this to them about his heart toward them. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Again, God's heart is coming through here. His heart for these people, that he, they are his treasured people, truly special from all. And they have a special role to play. They just need to obey the covenant and keep the covenant. They, of course, do not. Literally, while God is giving the, giving the covenant to Moses, they are down making an idol, giving it credit for releasing them from Egypt. While God is having Moses write down, don't make an idol, they're making an idol. And so in Leviticus 26, when God says, you shall not make idols for yourselves, that we kind of read that pretty straightforward. But the first people hearing this, it would have been really heavy because they know they had done it before. And it was one of the worst moments in their history. They, they were unfaithful. They sinned against God in the worst way. And even though he would have been just to just abandon them, to say, okay, you didn't do what you're supposed to. You've gone against it. You've broken the covenant. I'm done with you. But he doesn't do that. He graciously doesn't that. Instead, he graciously renews the covenant with them. And after renewing the covenant with them, after reestablishing who they are with him, he has them go about making a tabernacle where he will dwell amongst them. We talked about this way back in the very first message. If you weren't here, we talked about this tent of meeting, you will, that they made. And I actually brought, let me see if it's going to work on the TV. Nope. Oh. The cats in us want to follow the red dot. I tried. So I'll just try to point stuff. So the walled area enclosed, uh, the wall tent enclosed a middle area. That middle tent right there is called, uh, this is, excuse me, this is where they would come to offer their sacrifices, where they would come to be in the presence of God. They would come, the smaller tent was divided into two sections. The holy place was the first area that could only be entered by the priest, and it housed the menorah, the table of bread, and the incense altar, all different things that were very central to their worship. The second room was the Holy of Holies, and this was the most holy place in the Israelite camp. It held the Ark of the Covenant, and it represented the glory of God in his presence. And so you have the altar when they first walk in, where they would bring their sacrifices, the laver where they would wash, and the priest would deal, deal with the sacrifices that they would offer, then you'd go into the tent for the holy place and the holy of holies. This is another image of it, but looking not as graphical, but looking at it from, the, from down, the top. Now, Exodus ends with this tabernacle. They've built this tabernacle. They've built this place. God, as God has told them, as God has directed them, this is where I'm going to come and be amongst you. It's like a recreation of the Garden of Eden. I'm going to be in your midst. That Exodus ends with the tabernacle, leading to Leviticus, which tells them how to live as his people. And one of the things we've been saying as we've gone through Leviticus is we've been taking it a section by section. That's one of the ways that we can get lost in Leviticus is we get kind of lost within the details that we miss the beauty of the larger forest because we're focused on the trees. We need to see the different sections and what they're trying to do and then understand the little parts amongst them. And so we've been going section by section. And so Leviticus 1 through 7, we talked about, were the sacrifices. 
that God wants us to be with them. He makes a way for people to be with them. And he tells them, as you bring your sacrifices, he wants the people to be able to come into his midst. Then we went to Exodus, excuse me, Leviticus 8 through 10, where it talks about the priest. It talks about those who are going to represent him. That to live grace, you live representing God, surrendered to God, and living in the grace that God gives to us. Then we went to Leviticus 11 to 15, talking about a spiritual mindset, discernment that God wants us to have, being able to think through what is clean and what is unclean, what is holy and what is common. That led to Leviticus 16 and 17, where atonement is talked about, the central part of Leviticus, that God provides the means for us to know forgiveness and grace, that he makes it possible for our sins to be forgiven. That led to the holiness code in Leviticus 18 to 20, that God calls us to live in all things holy as he is holy, that he wants us to be as he is. Then Leviticus 21 to 24, the feast we're talked about, that God gives us these regular reminders of who he is, who we are in him, and the people that we're meant to be. And then this last section that we're looking at today, Leviticus 25 to 27, is this, this section on commitment, on dedication, that we are to live a life of continual worship to God. It's cool when you see the different sections of Leviticus that they all correspond with this tabernacle that they have built. That they come in sacrificing. It talks about the priest, where the, that section where the priests deal with the sacrifices. What is holy and unholy, clean and unclean, holy, dealing with the holy place, all focus on the Day of Atonement and the Holy of Holies. What happens when you lay Leviticus over the tabernacle, you have this idea where the first half of the book has them gathering at the tabernacle, and then the last half of the book deals with them as they're sent out from the tabernacle. And it creates this rhythm of they come to gather in worship, and they're sent out in worship. They gather in worship, and they're sent out in worship. They gather in worship, and they're sent out in worship. Because that's the whole point. We live lives of worship. Everybody does. We live lives of worship. And what Leviticus is telling us is that God should have our worship. God should have our hearts. God should be the one that our hearts are enamored on and the one who defines everything that we do. Justin Brearley says this, I believe we are all made to worship. That instinct runs so deep within us that if we don't worship God, we will end up worshiping something else instead. The object of people's worship is whatever pre preeminent thing they build their lives around. They are, there are the usual glamorous contenders, money, sex, power, and the less obvious idols too, career, family, or fitness. But that, not, that, not that any of these, these things are bad in and of themselves, but as Tim Keller says, idolatry usually involves turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. We are made to worship. Every single one of us worships something. And God's call to us in the book of Leviticus is to remind us is that nothing compares to him. Nothing else is worthy of the worship of our heart. Our lives should be focused, dedicated to him, focused on him, and that should define everything that we are. This is why Leviticus is still so relevant to us today. It teaches us to live this life of worship, something that the New Testament echoes as well. 
It says in Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, if there's a summary of a lot of what Leviticus is teaching us, it's right there in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Live your life worshiping the Lord. Don't be like the world around you. Be like who he is. Just like Leviticus said, don't be like the people where you came from. Don't be like the people where you're going. But follow my statutes. Be holy as I am holy. Romans tells us the same thing. Renew your mind to be focused on him. And that everything that you would do would give glory to God our Father. Now, as it gets to this, as it declares this right at the beginning in Leviticus, it gives us some charges to the people on how to live. And there's three different things I want to point out in here. First, it's going to tell us, live mindful of God's mercy as you strive to be obedient. There's different things it commands us to do, but we need to be some things about God we need to be mindful of as we do them. And so first, live mindful of God's mercy as you strive to be obedient. We are called to be obedient to God. And thankfully, he is a merciful God that we are being obedient to. Leviticus 26, verses 3 to 39. We're not going to read all those verses. There's a lot there. But in this long section is the section of some blessings and some curses. Leviticus 26.3 says, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, and then it goes on talking about all of these blessings, the blessed life that they will experience. Leviticus 26, 14 and 15, But if you will not listen to me and will do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, And then it speaks to the consequences of that, the curses that come with that type of a life. And so it's very much in this hypothetical situation that all of us and all of them are going to be facing. In the future, if you are obedient, you will experience this type of blessing. But if you're not, if you abhor me, if you reject me, if you don't want anything to do with me, this is where that leads. Israel... It was a, it's very common for different law types of writing during this time to have sections like this. Covenants would be made, so there must be declared expectations and also ramifications if the covenant was broken. But let's be honest, Israel's track record is not the greatest as far as keeping the covenant. Again, remember, these are the people who were making idols. All God said, don't make idols. So these first few verses in the chapter remind them of some of their biggest failures. I'm sure as as they were hearing verses 3 through 39, they may be thinking this, if you obey or if you don't obey, some of them probably were thinking, yeah, we're totally going to be in that second group. I mean, let's just be honest. We're all going to be in that second group. But I don't think that's just them either, is it? I think that there's a reality that for all of us, we get to a point where we have to acknowledge at some point, we're not going to do what God wants us to do. At some point, we're going to reject him. Well, I mean, that language of abhorring what he has to say or disgusted with him, I mean, that's kind of harsh. Well, but if we don't obey what God is saying, we're saying something's better. 
And so the reality is that we all find ourselves in that second category of people who are going to go the opposite of what God commands. And so within that, it gets to this really powerful section in verses 40 to the end of the chapter. Verse 40 says this, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. I'm calling you to be obedient, God says, but I know that you are going to fail at times. I mean, God knows the reality that he's dealing with people, the way that humanity has always been since the very beginning. And so what, and in that, as God has always been, he is merciful to forgive us. And so he calls us and he leads us within that. He wants us, when we fail, to be repentant. During the times when we, when we are disobedient to him, when we're unfaithful to him, when we don't follow what he commands and guides us in, he wants us to be repentant. He specifically says, be humbled and make amends for your iniquity. Be humbled. Acknowledge what you've done. Be honest about it. Acknowledge the wrongs and the consequences for your sins. When we do something wrong, we need to acknowledge that. Not with all the ram of the qualifications, not with all the justifications, not with all the, this person, that person. I did this. That's humbling ourselves. I am acknowledging the reality and being honest about it and owning my actions. He says, be humble. But then he also says, make amends. Make the situation right. But that, they would, that they would make amends for their iniquity. Because making the, I mean, think about if you ever have a little kid apologize to their siblings, if you've ever seen that, or maybe even some adults do the same thing. Hey, you need to say you're sorry to them. Sorry. Like, there was no meaning behind those words at all. Like, no, like you mean it. Sorry. Like the tone of voice goes up. But what are we trying to do within that is that it's not just the words that are coming out of you. It's the disposition of your heart and your life. And though, what's the best way to show repentance is that how you then engage the situation from here on out. And what does God say? Make the situation right. Not allowing the situation to continue is that a person is truly repentant of their actions. So when we do things that are wrong, anybody here ever do anything stupid? Okay, if your hand's not up, there's your thing. You lied. <laughs> we all do something stupid. And we probably have family members who can go, yes, they do. But the reality is, is that we on our own individual basis have to acknowledge those things. This is my sin. That isn't to beat us up. That's to be honest. That's to be truthful. And any Israelite could simply look at the commands of Leviticus 18 to 20, that holiness code, about be holy as I am holy, or any of the other sections to realize that they failed to be obedient. And what's really interesting here is that for 25 chapters, God keeps talking about these sacrifices and bringing sacrifice and atonement and all those things. But there is no sacrifices in chapter 26. They are the ones who are coming. God is, God is expecting their hearts in those moments. 
God is in this chapter anticipating what David will pray later in the Psalms. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. That's how God wants us to be with our sin. He wants us to be broken about that. He wants us to feel bad about our sin. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to feel shame. It doesn't mean that the value of who we are as people is less. It doesn't mean that we should think that we're horrible. But we should feel horrible about what we've done. And there's a difference between those two things. And so he is saying we need to humble ourselves, acknowledge the reality of our wrongs, and make those things right. Coming to him, saying, God, forgive me. As we live lives of worship, we must acknowledge the times that we don't obey God and truly repent of those moments. Not just proverbial muttering sorries, but truly coming to him, asking for mercy. And we don't have to be afraid to come to him and be repentant of him because he is always merciful. He, the text says, verse 41, I walked, I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. They chose sin. They chose to not follow God's ways. So he carried them, brought them to the consequences but he's also the same God who brings them and carries them out of them. He's the God who brings them back to where they should be. He's the one that's going to bring them back to wholeness. He brings us there also. You need to know that there's nothing in your life that you've ever done that God won't forgive. There's nothing that you've ever done in your life that God won't forgive. And you might be thinking of something, yeah, but there's this thing. And I'm not, I, I, it's not, I'm not worth, I, I, I shouldn't be forgiven for this. I shouldn't, I, I'm not, it's not right for me to, I, I, yeah, you're right. And God's forgiveness is bigger than what you think about it. There's nothing in your life that God won't forgive. And that's the reality where the world brings shame that you've done this wrong, that's the, that's the reality and the harmful reality of cancel culture in our world today. You've done this wrong, so you're done. But God says you've done this wrong, you are forgiven. And Christians are really good at canceling the world too. But God's a God of forgiveness. You can know forgiveness. There is nothing in your life that God won't forgive. God, so we need to live mindful of God's mercy as we strive to be obedient because we're all going to mess up and we need to seek forgiveness from him when we do. The second thing in this last section is, is to live mindful of God's faithfulness as you strive to be holy. Be mindful of God's faithfulness as you strive to be holy. I'm going to start in verse 42 again. If you, if you repent, if you acknowledge these realities, if you have a repentant heart, verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurred my rules and their souls abhorred my statutes. That for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. 
neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord your God, their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I will be their God. I am the Lord. Now this section builds on the previous one, but it intensifies many of the descriptions that have already been said. The people weren't merely disobedient to God. They spurred his rules and their souls abhorred his statutes. I mean, the things of God disgusted them. They hated the things of God. The land which God told them to care for, they abandoned. The covenant which God made with them, they broke. The ways which God directed them in, it's like they just flipped them off and walked the other way. They were sick of the reality of God. That's the language that's here describing their actions. They were utterly unfaithful to God and the life they were in covenant to with him. But the emphasis here is that even though God would be justified in abandoning them, the emphasis in this section is look how faithful God is. Look how faithful God is. It's really interesting in verses 3 to 39, that section we didn't totally get into. If you want to go and do check it later, you can. Over 90 times the word you is given. You, 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 all talking about them and their actions. But here in verses 44 to the end that we're looking at, it's all God. The emphasis is on who God is and what he's doing and not on them, but on who God is. And what is the point here? God is a faithful God. Even when you have done all this, God is going to be faithful. In verse 42, the patriarchs are mentioned in reverse order. Normally we would say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here it says Jacob, Isaac, and then Abraham. And so Jacob, I'll remember my covenant with Jacob. That guy really wasn't the most faithful guy. I'll remember Isaac. He wasn't either. I'll remember Abraham. Even he had his moments. Who else is there to remember at this point? That's the point. All of us are unfaithful. And since God has walked with humanity, we've been unfaithful. But God has been faithful. Throughout all of humanity's unfaithfulness, God has been faithful. And he always will be. God, in verse 42, I will never spurn them. I will never abhor them. I will never act the way toward them the way they act toward me. I will always be faithful to them. Verse 45, for their sake, I'll remember the covenant. Just as I rescued them from Egypt, I'll keep rescuing them from their sin. I will always be faithful to them. God is true to his word. He never wavers in his character. He is always, always, always faithful. This is why we need to read and learn our Bibles. So that we can know the reality of God. How he guides us. How the, the promises, what the promises are that he gives. What he is faithful to. This is why we need to stay rooted in community. So that others can remind us of God's faithfulness. Or to, when we forget or when we're discouraged. This is why we don't have to live in shame because he is faithful to forgive and to restore. That last part in verse 45, but I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. That I might be their God. That's the key. Is he your God? 
when you talk about the reality of God Almighty, is that your God? Is he Lord of your life? Is, are you in relationship with the one who is faithful even when we're not, who is gracious and merciful even when we fail, who wants to be with us, wants to bless us, wants to lead us, wants to give us hope, wants to care for us? Is that your God? And if Leviticus has shown us anything, it's that we continually run the other way. We go to other things. We, we go for the unclean. We go for the common. We go for the mundane when God is offering us a life of so much more. A life of forgiveness and wholeness and purpose and future hope that nothing else can give. And we try so hard to do it on our own and we look to our own goodness and we look for other pe- to other people's goodness. But none of that matches up. None of that can do to our sin which causes the brokenness. None of that can fix that. None of that can restore that. None of that can take, none of that can take care of the sin problem. It's only God that can. And so in the same way that they had to continually bring these sacrifices, Jesus went to the cross to offer one sacrifice for all time so that we could know forgiveness, so that he would take our sin upon him and he could put his life upon us. And so that when God looks at us, he sees the reality of Jesus and says, come to me. Come to me. I am one with you. I want you, my child. And so you need to stop trusting other things. That's the whole idea of repentance, is I'm turning away from something and to something else. And we need to stop turning to all these other things in life to do for our hearts what only God can do. There's nothing wrong with money and relationships and careers and diplomas and accomplishments and all those things, but they're not meant to be the object of your worship. They're not meant to be your God. And so you need to turn from all those things and you need to turn to him, saying, God, forgive me and give me life. I'm trusting what you did on the cross for to forgive my sins. And I'm trusting the life that you give me through the resurrection to give me life. Make me your child. When you can say that, and you're, however you want to articulate that to the Lord, that's when you begin to live. That's when you're saved. That's when you're rescued from sin and brought into freedom. Romans says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Ephesians 2 says, It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If you've never confessed that Jesus is Lord of your life, then you needed to do that today. Not to trust into all the other things, but to receive that gift of God. Believe him and then be baptized. Declare that. Let people know, I am now a child of God. But God is faithfully pursuing you. You need to know that. God is faithfully pursuing you. And you can keep running and you can keep rejecting and you can keep saying whatever you want and making it as ugly or whatever, minimal or whatever it is, but the more you run away from God, you need to go, he is never going to stop pursuing you. And all you have to do is turn around and run to him. And the beauty of it is because God's been pursuing you, when you turn around, he's right there. So stop running. The faithful God is pursuing you and he wants you to know 
the life that your heart is longing for, and it's only found in him. But be mindful of God's faithfulness as you strive to be holy. The last thing, live mindful of hope from God as you strive to be faithful. The last verse in this chapter, these are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, this is, this is not, there's one more chapter in Leviticus, but this is like, this is like the culminating chapter. You know, like when you see a movie and there's like the really big scene that kind of wraps it all up and they have like that one little scene that kind of like ends the movie type of a thing. That's how chapter 27 is. Chapter 26 is like seen as like, this is the big moment bringing it all together, that type of a thing. And so in this really big end of Leviticus, it's not actually the end of their story. They are moving toward the promised land. Leviticus is part of something that's happening. There's more to come. In the very first message on this series, I quoted from the Bible Project, and this is what we said. Placed right in between Exodus and Numbers, Leviticus acts as a bridge highlighting the need for restoration of the relationship between God and humans. It is not just a long list of laws and rituals. Leviticus is a story about God's desire to repair his relationship with Israel so that they can live with him in a restored holy space and rest with him as reformed people who represent his character to all the nations. That's what this book has been about, that God, that this relationship with God would be restored and that we could be one with God, dwelling with him, sharing the love and grace of God with those around us. The Leviticus 26 is presented as this hypothetical scenario, if you do this language. It doesn't take long into the rest of Scripture to see that it's almost as a preview of things to come, both Israel's unfaithfulness, but also the Lord's never-ending faithfulness. But we've seen the main point here. People won't be faithful, but God always will be. Acknowledging this doesn't mean that we just go and do whatever Because Leviticus sets a very high bar. Worship, be holy, be a person of love. It's one thing to read these verses. It's another thing to put them into practice. And so Leviticus 26 tells us that as high as God's standard of holiness is for us, his available grace even raises higher than that. His mercy is even higher. Be holy as God is holy and know that forgiveness is available Grace and mercy overflow, and God will never leave you nor forsake you. I think the reality is that when we think about what's to come, we get very nervous, we can be fearful, we can have anxiety. But when we're looking through the lens of a God who loves us, is gracious and merciful, we might not know what's coming next in the story, but we know who's going with us in the story. And that's why I say this should be a word of hope. Because this God has done everything possible for us to restore the relationship. Now he's going to walk with us as we live the relationship with him. One scholar says this, When the final word of Leviticus 26 is spoken, the gift of the statutes and ordinances as law at the mountain should summon Israel to celebrate, not fear, God's promise not to be bound by God's own principles of justice. They should celebrate that God is giving them this life and not giving them what they deserve. His grace and mercy overflow, and he wants them to be with them, and he's walking with them. And it's the same for us. Because of the reality of Jesus, he goes with us, and we have hope. 
He makes life possible, and that eternal life includes today and stretches well beyond when we are gone. And so we can move forward with him in hope. We need to be mindful of his mercy, his faithfulness, and hope as we strive to be obedient, holy, and faithful. God does raise the bar high, but his mercy and his grace are just as high, and we need to remember that. And so as we close today, we're going to receive communion. To be reminded of Jesus' sacrifice for us, it makes it possible for us to be with God, but also to remind us of how we are to live, that we are to live in light of this salvation, that we are to live as his people. It says in Hebrews 10, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleaning for those who came, cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. You guys can start passing it out. And so this Hebrews talks about the sacrifice that Jesus provides, that he is the one that cleanses sins. It says in Hebrews 10, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifices of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. And so when we receive communion, we're remembering his death in our place, his broken body, his shed blood done in our place so that we can know forgiveness and we can know life. While you're, they're passing the elements out, if you've never done communion with before, just you're going to get some bread, you're going to get a little thing of juice, just hold on to those and we'll receive communion together. Uh, the little tray in the tray of bread, it has gluten-free if you need that in there. Um, we always take a moment of just quiet reflection before we receive communion, just a time to, as we, to, feed it. We've been, uh, we're about to take the bread um, and uh, eat on the bread. We want to feed on the word as well. And so what we've heard from the, the word of God, is there something we need to acknowledge, something we need to confess, something we need to be grateful for? Uh, as we think about his mercy, his, gra- his grace, his faithfulness, his hope, is there something you need to direct your heart to? Or maybe you just need to be quiet before him and allow God to speak to your hearts. Uh, But whatever that is, we're just going to take a moment of prayer and then we'll receive communion together. And so God, I pray that you would be with us in this moment. Let us hear from you. And we're grateful, God, that you want to listen to us. And so speak to us now. Let's be quiet before him.
you stand with me? Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for the sacrifice which you make in our place. We say we're grateful for your broken body, God. We're grateful for your shed blood that you died in our place so that we can know forgiveness of sin. God, we thank you for making us your children, for giving us new identities. God, we're we're grateful for your never-ending, overflowing grace and mercy. We're grateful for the hope that we have in you. God, we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we are astray, when we reject you, God. God, I pray that you would bring us back, that we would restore our vision to you. As people, as a church, God, we lift up our voices in gratitude. We direct our hearts to you in thankfulness. We remember all that you've done. Let's receive communion together. Thank you, Jesus, for your love and for all that you do for us and all you continue to do.